Good evening. I'm Sergio Verdu, Chair of the University Public uh, Lectures Committee, and uh, I would like to uh, welcome everyone to tonight's Van Oxtem Lecture. This is a lecture series with a long tradition at Princeton. It was established in 1912 with a bequest of $25,000 under the will of Louis Clark Van Uxem of the class of 1879. Uh, previous lecturers in this series include Edwin Havel, Thomas Mann, Robert Oppenheimer, John von Neumann, and Claude Shannon. Tonight's lecturer will be introduced by Professor Ingrid Dobeshit of uh, the uh, Department of Mathematics. Professor Dobeshit has uh, received many important distinctions for her uh, groundbreaking discoveries in the field of wavelets. Uh, in particular, she is a recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship. And three years ago, Professor Dobeshit became the first woman to receive the National Academy of Sciences Award in Mathematics, which is presented every four years for excellence in mathematical research. Professor Dobishis. Um, tonight I stand here, and it's with great pleasure that I am here as the person who's been invited to introduce Jack Horner. I suggested him as a speaker to the committee, and I'm very, very glad, as I'm sure the, the multitude of you show that you are glad, too, that they took up the suggestion. Jack is just a great guy. I mean, I know him because he's a fellow MacArthur uh, uh, fellow, fellow MacArthur fellow, but, uh, uh, and I, I, I have been constantly uh, uh, touched and, and, and moved by his enthusiasm for all the things he knows. Um, I could uh, give you a, a list of his accomplishments, which is big too. Uh, you can read it on the web. I should give him all the time he, will, he, can, he can have in order to give his lecture. Good. It will be great. <laughs> that was good. That's the best introduction I've ever had. Thank you. I hate introductions. Don't you hate introductions? Usually people end up giving your whole lecture for you. All right. Can, um, do we get the lights down here a little bit? Well, I'm, I, am, I am really honored to be here. I, I actually used to work here. Um, and over in Geo Hall. Does there, anyone know where that is? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, uh -huh. There used to be dinosaurs over there. There's one dinosaur over there now. We'll get some back though, right? Okay, good. Well, I've been gone for 20 years or so, so. We've started, we've started learning things about dinosaurs and what I'd like to do tonight is actually talk about sort of where we're going with dinosaur research. Um, dinosaur research, dinosaur science in the 21st century. And, and, but before I do that, I want to give you a kind of a history of, of, of sort of how our, how our notions about dinosaurs have changed over the years. I'm sure many of you know that, that uh, if you've been you know, watching even 
Jurassic Park over the few times that we've seen it. Jurassic Park 1, 2, and 3. You'll notice the dinosaurs have even evolved in the movies. (laughs) And that's because we actually are learning things about dinosaurs. We actually learn new things. And occasionally people even listen to us. It depends on how much it makes, however, right? On how much people listen. And I'll give you a good example of that in just a couple seconds here. But if we look at, if we, if we go back, kind of look at the, the sort of the middle of the 19th century and, and, and think about what people thought about then, we, when the first dinosaur remains were found, uh, this tooth up here in the left hand, upper left-hand corner is a tooth that was found uh, in England, and the person that found it didn't know what it was, but it was different than anything else that was around. And so, and so being a good scientist, or, or at least following the scientific method for the day, a person took this tooth around and compared it to everything that he could find, and, and look for something that was similar. And what he found was that the tooth looked very similar to the teeth of the lizard iguana. And so he called his new thing iguanodon, which means iguana tooth. And when he did that, he actually did something else. And he didn't do it really on purpose, but, but because the tooth compared best with an iguana lizard, dinosaurs became reptiles just by his identification of the tooth being most similar to a lizard. And back in those days, back in the mid-1800s, people had sort of a notion of what reptiles were because they had their Linnaean classification system. They knew that there were fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals, as far as vertebrates go. And if you say that that, that tooth, that iguanodon tooth, belongs to a reptile, then that means that it has certain characteristics. And those certain characteristics are reptilian. Right? So, 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 you know, what's reptilian? Well, that means that, you know, the animals are stupid, right? And cold-blooded. And they drag their tails wherever they go. So that's, those are reptilian characteristics. And so, when they started putting, you know, putting the dinosaurs together, they gave them reptilian characteristics. The first dinosaur skeleton, the first skeleton of a dinosaur ever found came from New Jersey. That's right, New Jersey. The first dinosaur skeleton found came from New Jersey, Haddonfield, New Jersey. Here is the skeleton right here. This was the first rendition. The first rendition was put in the Academy of Natural Science in Philadelphia. Nobody knew really what a dinosaur looked like. And so they didn't have the skull. They had parts of the left side of the skeleton. They had a leg, a hind leg, and a front leg. And so they 
They could tell by looking at this thing that the thing stood on its hind legs, but it's a reptile, so it has to drag its tail. So they stood it up, because we stand up, we're on our hind legs, right? So they stood it up, broke its tail, and made it drag, because it's a good reptile. And reptiles drag their tails, that's just all there is to it. So when they made the painting of what these dinosaurs look like in life, I mean, here they are. They just they walk around upright, dragging their busted tails. <laughs> now I say this is the first rendition, and the first rendition has um, actually is actually it's actually put together right. The uh, the pelvic bones they couldn't tell which one was which. The pubis they actually put forward, and the ischium they put backwards, which is the right way. But in the second rendition here at Princeton University, they got it backwards. And, it, and, and again, it wasn't, it wasn't wrong, they just didn't know. They just didn't know, so they just kept guessing. But actually, if, you, if I should actually have a picture up here of the original restoration of Iguanodon when they didn't have a skeleton, they got every single bone wrong, every single one. They had the femur where the humerus goes, the humerus where the femur goes, the ulna where the tibia goes. I mean, they had it all backwards. So these renditions, you know, between Philadelphia and Princeton were actually pretty good because it was just the pelvis that was all mixed up. But this was how things were going in the, in the you know, in the 1800s. And, and so when they found dinosaur bones, I mean, even the brontosaurs, when they first found the brontosaurs, they tried to put them into these reptilian poses. Well, I mean, we know that they, I mean, they just, they just, it just doesn't work. I mean, in order to get brontosaurus to stand like that, you not only have to break their tails, you have to break their backs, you have to break their legs. I mean, you just basically break everything and then you can make them a good reptile. Now, you know, you would think that that people would have stood back and said, boy, you know, it just doesn't look very good with a broken tail. I mean, you'd think that, you know, like common sense would have snuck in here somewhere. But really, it didn't. And, and it didn't even though we went into the 20th century. It still was the same. When we look at the dinosaurs that that were found in the early part of the 20th century, like Tyrannosaurus rex and the big old Brachiosaurs. They still did the same things for the same exact reason. Dinosaurs ended up dragging their tails because they were good, cold-blooded, stupid reptiles. Now, you know, I mean, just think of Tyrannosaurus rex. It's a 40-foot-long animal. It weighed 12,000 pounds and it's dragging 4,000 pounds of tail everywhere it goes. And this big old, I mean, just imagine all the things that get caught in your, stuck in your stickers and, I don't know, it's just, but nobody thought about that. They didn't think about that. That's all right though. That was this preconceived idea that they started with the Linnaean way of classifying things and. That's just the way it would go until 1964 when John Ostrom from Yale University discovered a dinosaur 
that he would call Deinonychus. And it is the link to birds. And after that, our whole idea of dinosaurs changed. The whole notion of dinosaurs changed. John Ostrom was also responsible for getting tails off the ground. He was actually the person that said, you know, not only have we broken the dinosaurs' tails, but we've removed all of these bony tendons so we could break the tails. And so what John did basically was just sort of put the tails back together again, put the tendons on them, and he noticed that tails wouldn't drag. So if ever you see dinosaurs dragging their tails in any paintings or any museums, just remember, you're looking at broken tails. They're broken. Now, you can get a broken tail. I mean, we do actually have dinosaurs with broken tails, and they're probably... Now we know that dinosaurs walked around like this rather than like this, right? They're, they kind of parallel to the ground with their tail sticking straight out behind them, right? So, I mean, you can imagine that, you know, there's a big post sticking up and you turn around too quick and you probably will break your tail. I mean, that's... I mean, there's other things, you know, when dinosaurs squat down, if you ever watch a bird squat down, they just squirt, they just go straight down. Dinosaurs would do the same thing, and of course they had big old tails sticking out there. So as soon as they're sitting down on the ground, you know that some other dinosaur probably walked along and tripped over it. So, so we actually do find broken, rehealed tails. So we know, we even find these, these pathologies on the tails that tell us that, that dinosaurs had problems with their tails. Well, at the same time that John Ostrom had discovered this dinosaur and the link to birds and, and found that dinosaurs didn't drag their tails, this was about the same time that, that a new way of classifying things, a new way of organizing things was sort of coming to age. We call this cladistics. This is a sort of the way of organizing things by how they're related to one another. And a cladogram, a cladogram of reptilia, like you see here, what it tells us is that birds have characteristics in common with dinosaurs called dromaeosaurs. And for all of you adults, let me just mention that the kids know more than you do. You can... You might be sitting here at Princeton University, but the kids know more than you do. So they know that dromaeosaurs include dinosaurs like Velociraptor and Deinonychus. So, you know, if, you, if you're having some, if you adults are having problems out there, just look around for a kid to ask if I say any words that are just too big for you. <laughs> All right? Okay, so, so, the way we look at how things are related now, we look at them using shared characters. And so we know that dromaeosaurid dinosaurs share characteristics with birds. They have a common ancestor. And so we can go all the way down and we can see that the reptilia, the way we classify it now, the way we think about reptilia, includes turtles, lizards, snakes, crocodiles, pterosaurs, dinosaurs, and birds. So birds are not only 
dinosaurs, but birds are reptiles. Everybody say that. Birds are reptiles. Don't forget that. And you kids, when you, you can put that on a test, and if you get a bad grade, have the teacher write me a letter, <laughs> and we'll fix that, because birds are reptiles. Don't forget that. All right. Now, when we study dinosaurs, when I study dinosaurs, and when most of my colleagues study dinosaurs, we're interested in how dinosaurs lived, and we were interested in the biology of dinosaurs nowadays. Back in the 1800s, people were trying to figure out what dinosaurs were and what they were like as, as just skeletons. I mean, they didn't even know how to put the skeletons together right. And up until the time that John Ostrom discovered Deinonychus, it was still sort of the same thing. Dinosaurs, as far as most people were concerned, were just skeletons. And, and really what people did, most people would go out, dig up a dinosaur, bring it back to their museum, brush all the dirt off of it, put it together, and then sort of stand back and say, whoa, cool looking dinosaur. Then they go get another one. I mean, that was the science in the 1800s and the, and the early 1900s. And so what John Ostrom actually helped us do was, was sort of go from, from dinosaurs as reptiles to, to dinosaurs as more bird-like, or at least birds more dinosaur-like. But really what he got us into was thinking about dinosaurs as real animals, as interesting animals. Now, I don't know why it was that people didn't think dinosaurs as reptiles were very interesting, but they didn't. I mean, frankly, they didn't. And now they do. So now, when we're thinking about dinosaurs as animals, we want to make some comparisons. We want to do the same thing that, that, uh, that Mantell did when he was carrying his tooth around, trying to figure out what it was most closely similar to. And, and so what we need are modern animals to make comparisons with. And so we actually use this cladogram to see what is alive today that we can make comparisons with. And you will see that dinosaurs, here are dinosauria, that includes the ornithischians all the way through birds, and crocodiles are down here. So the group Archosauria includes crocodiles, pterosaurs, all of the dinosaurs, and birds. So if we find a characteristic, if, we, if we're looking at dinosaurs and we see a characteristic that, uh, that is actually, that it is something that is shared, a characteristic that we see among crocodilians and among birds, then, we can, then we're pretty safe in saying that dinosaurs probably had that same characteristic as well. I mean, we just use crocodiles and birds are sort of the groups that bracket dinosaurs that are alive today. So that's, that's, that's sort of the, the methodology we're using now. Now, in the late 20th century, we found a lot of stuff, and we made a lot of predictions, or we, made a, we put together a lot of what we called hypotheses about what dinosaurs were like as living animals. I was very fortunate uh, to start working just 
pretty much right after John Ostrom had declared that, that birds and dinosaurs were very closely related. And I was very fortunate at that time to, to have been involved in discoveries of baby dinosaurs and dinosaur eggs and a lot of things that help us kind of flesh out the picture of what dinosaurs were like as living creatures. And, and so from all of this, we've, we've, we've sort of got new ideas of what dinosaurs look like. We, you know, we, we, we think now, I mean, we even find dinosaurs with feathers. And, and so our ideas of these dinosaurs are more bird-like. And we don't see dinosaurs dragging their tails around. And, and we even have found evidence that dinosaurs may have actually brooded their eggs, actually sat on their eggs to incubate them. So we've, we've got a whole lot of ideas, and, and these ideas are actually hypotheses. And these hypotheses are something that, that we can test, that we can actually look into. And that's really what we did in the end of the 20th century, was we, we sort of gathered together a lot of ideas and, and, and made these hypotheses about dinosaurs. And some of them are pretty good ones. Um, d birds are dinosaurs, for example. There's a, over a hundred characteristics that link birds with dinosaurs. Now, there are people that disagree with it, and, and I liken them sort of to the Flat Earth Society. <laughs> you know, there's always going to be somebody that doesn't believe something. And for birds, all we can do is look at the characteristics. And like I say, we have literally over a hundred characteristics, good characteristics that show that birds and dinosaurs share more characteristics than birds do with anything else or that dinosaurs do with anything else. So, so birds are dinosaurs and the world is round. Okay? Right. Extinct dinosaurs were warm-blooded. We also, again, have just tremendous numbers of characteristics to suggest that dinosaurs were warm-blooded. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were endothermic, endothermic homeotherms just like us. They may be a little different than us. We, we uh, generate heat internally and we keep a constant body temperature. We think dinosaurs may have have um, generated heat internally, but been able to fluctuate their temperature quite a bit. And that's actually something that would be nice if we could do that. But, uh, but it still makes them warm-blooded. Dinosaurs cared for their young. Well, crocodilians and birds care for their young as well. So there's nothing out of the ordinary about that particular hypothesis. Um, some dinosaurs travel in herds. We have, I think, very good evidence for that as well. Um, one of the theories that, um, that is pretty contentious right now is T-Rex was a scavenger. That was my hypothesis. <laughs> you know, I, and I'll talk about that just here in a second. And then as far as growth goes in dinosaurs, people suggested that dinosaurs grew faster than crocodiles, but they didn't know too much about that. And there were some people that came out and said, dome-headed dinosaurs butted their heads. I mean, I mean that, and that's a great hypothesis because 
for the late 20th century, you know, there were movies like Jurassic Park and, and, and there were uh, Discovery movies. Discovery Channel was putting out an awful lot of stuff. And, and the, the more fantastic things they could do, the, you know, the more people that watched and therefore the more money they made. So, so, it, it, so butting heads for these dinosaurs was a pretty cool thing. Um, Stegosaurus plates aided in thermoregulation. Another thing that, you know, it, it just seemed to be pretty cool. Well, we're going to look at these last four, and, and I'll start out with this, this one, this 20th century question. Was Tyrannosaurus rex a predator or a scavenger? Now, everyone had always thought that T. rex was a predator because it was big and it was powerful. And it was mean looking. And of course, you all remember the Tyrannosaurus rex skeleton that I showed up here that had been mounted at the American Museum in New York City. It had a broken tail, stood up, looked really mean and nasty, and everyone just assumed that it must have been a predatory dinosaur. And so this was one of the things that I challenged early on in 1990, and I gathered all sorts of evidence, and all of the evidence seemed to suggest that T. rex was probably a scavenger rather than a predator. Um, it has bone-crushing teeth. We found lots of bones that had actually been crushed um, by T. rex. We found that the olfactory lobes, in, by doing CAT scans, the olfactory lobes of T. rex, uh, compared to the size of the brain case, was very similar to what we see in turkey vultures. When we looked at uh, the, the, when we looked at the leg proportions, if we looked at animals that ran fast, they always had a short thigh bone and a long shin bone, and Tyrannosaurus rex had just the opposite, had a long thigh bone and a short shin bone, suggesting that T. rex could not run fast. And then John Hutchison at Stanford actually did some biomechanics and determined that, that T. rex actually couldn't have run at all. Um, Jim Farlow also <laughs> did some studies and, and determined that mammals could have caused the extinction of T. rex by simply tripping them. <laughs> I don't know about that, but you know, I, but I wasn't going to argue with it because it seemed to, you know, it, it was helping out my particular theory. So, 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 you know, there, there was an awful lot of information, and it all seemed to point to T. rex being a scavenger. And that just happened when I finished all of this work. I, that was 1993. It was the same year that Steven Spielberg called me up and asked me if I wanted to be the technical advisor for Jurassic Park. And I said, oh, sure, what do I have to do? And what, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, just, you know, when you find I do something wrong, just tell me. And so that's just what I did. I told him. But I told him T-Rex was a scavenger. I said, Stephen, T-Rex is a scavenger. And he just kind of looked at me funny and said, that won't sell. <laughs> and so in the movie Jurassic Park and the Lost World and Jurassic Park 3, you see T-Rex chasing children, right? <laughs> Walking around, here he is, walking around in some neighborhood looking for dogs. <laughs> and he finds some. Yep, well, that's, so, so, so that was, uh, 
you know, I, I was sort of crushed after that, you know. I mean, nobody believed me. Not a, I couldn't find... I got hate mail from sixth graders. I mean... <laughs> there is no one in the world that likes the notion of T-Rex as a scavenger. And so it was that sort of turning point in my life where I kind of turned away from Tyrannosaurus Rex and started looking at other things. And so <clears throat> my research now is not on Tyrannosaurus Rex, although unfortunately I keep finding them. I'm kind of, it's karma, I guess. You know, I, I went out to look for duckbill dinosaurs, trying to get back into this whole notion of dinosaur behavior. And over the last couple of years, we've found eight Tyrannosaurus Rex skeletons. We're doing some pretty cool stuff with them, and 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 we are sort of learning some new things about them. But but I'm trying to stay away from the whole predator scavenger business because nobody will buy it. So we have our new questions. How long did it take a dinosaur to grow up? Now this is a kind of a cool question, and if you think about it. It's hard to figure this sort of stuff out. Dinosaur behavior or dinosaur growth, I mean, all we have are skeletons. You know, dinosaurs are dead. There's kind of two groups of them now, right? Birds are dinosaurs. We call birds avian dinosaurs. And the non-avian dinosaurs are all the big, dead, stupid ones, right? The big old clunky ones, they're all gone. And so, how do you determine how long it took a dinosaur to grow up? Well, what's really cool about dinosaur skeletons is, now this is, see, go take a course in geology. Go to geology and take some courses and you'll learn some really cool things about geology. Rocks. Rocks are where we find dinosaurs. And when dinosaurs fossilize, they don't petrify. Now, we always think of, you know, petrified dinosaurs. or pet We think of fossilization as being a process of petrification, but it isn't. Petrification is sort of where, where everything is replaced by something else. When it comes to dinosaurs... When it comes to dinosaur bones, they're actually not petrified. They're what we call permineralized. And actually, the entire structure is still there. And so, if we want to know how dinosaurs grew, all we have to do is cut open the bones and look inside. And so, that's what we do. We take, we take bones of different, age, different size different sized dinosaurs, we take their leg bones and we cut a slice out of them so we can look inside of them. And the inside of a dinosaur bone is really pretty neat looking. This right here, these are all dinosaur bones. This right here is a baby. And what you're looking at is the marrow cavity and then the outside of the bone. And so, what we're interested in when we're trying to figure out how fast a dinosaur grew or even how long they lived, what we're interested in is, is how much blood went through the bone 
And we can tell that by looking at how much space there is at these vascular spaces. And if you look at this bone right, the baby bone right here, you'll see that all these little holes, the black areas are the bone and the white areas are where the blood vessels went through. And different, <clears throat> different kinds of bone grow at different speeds. So you can see right here this kind of this process sticking out here and you can see that some of these spaces are actually very long in this direction. That's bone that actually is growing very, very fast. And so you can see some of those vessels right here. This is bone that's growing very fast. And when they're just round little things, they're growing pretty slow. So that's just, that's just one of the things that we look at. But we also have bone rings. And animals, a lot of animals, have bone rings. And these bone rings are just like tree rings. So we see these bone rings in animals like crocodiles. And all we have to do is just count the bone rings and we can see how old the crocodile is. And a lot of mammals have them as well. This is a three-year-old elk. And you can see the lines in the elk. Here are the lines in the alligator. So basically all we have to do is just count the lines. Now, crocodiles have these lines, but birds do not. And birds don't have these lines because all birds grow up in less than one year. These lines are annual. You get these lines when you're growing up. So yeah, sparrows grow up in a week. Ostriches grow up in 350 days. All birds grow up in less than one year. Primitive birds, however, actually grew up in one or two years. They actually, we see these growth lines, these growth rings in primitive birds. So we know that primitive birds actually took longer to grow up than modern birds do. So if we're interested in dinosaurs, we age dinosaurs the same way. We just count the lines that we see in them. This is Tyrannosaurus rex. It's an eight-year-old Tyrannosaurus rex. It was 40 feet long when it died. 40 feet, eight years. Here's a seven-year-old duckbill dinosaur, 35 feet long. What we've discovered by trying to age these dinosaurs and, and looking at how they grew, we've discovered that these dinosaurs, uh, such as this duckbill dinosaur, hatched out of its egg at about 16 inches long, grew to nine feet long the first year, and then is 35 feet long at the end of seven years. Dinosaurs grew very, very fast. But this is the kind of things that we're looking into now. These are the kinds of things that we're interested in looking at. It's sort of the growth rates of these things. So what we're finding is that dinosaurs grew very much like, like birds, especially like ostriches, not like alligators or crocodilians, nothing like that. So, um, so, this, this whole, I, so one of the things that happened is we were looking at this bone growth and, and then started thinking about some of these other problems that people had suggested. And of what use was the pachycephalosaur dome? Remember I was saying pachycephalosaurs are hypothesized to have beat their heads together. All right? Now, again, is this sensible? I mean, we, we like to think that, we like to, you know, 
we like to think that, that, we, that we do actually think about these things. Pachycephalosaurs have a round dome, very thickened skull. And the reason that, that people thought that they beat their heads together was because they found spongy looking bone inside of their skulls. And that's exactly what they did. They actually, they actually cut open some of these domes and they found these very, these, these porous areas, just like we see in the bones of the baby dinosaurs. But what they were saying was that, that this was a cushioning effect. In other words, they had opened up, you know, animals like bighorn sheep and they had found that there was cushions in the skulls of a bighorn sheep. And cushions are good, you know, if you're going to put your head down and run into the wall, it's, it, it's useful if, if you have a little cushion in there. Otherwise, you're going to just, you know, you're just going to see stars. So, so what the people had done was that they had looked at this skull of the pachycephalosaur. They'd seen all of this spongy looking stuff and they said, okay, that is the spongy bone that correlates with the spongy bone that we see in bighorn sheep. Well, it would have been, it probably would have been a great hypothesis if no one else would have cut any more pachycephalosaurs. But what we did was we went out and, and, and started looking at other structures and here is this baby bone again and it has these long, fast-growing bony vessels that look just exactly like the bone that we see in the pachycephalosaurs. And so we cut some more of these pachycephalosaurs open and what we found were all of these, these very spongy areas in juvenile skulls. The only ones that we found this kind of bone in were the juveniles. And we also discovered Sharpie's fibers, and Sharpie's fibers are, are a, kind of an interesting thing to find in bone. Sharpie's fibers are the fibers that attach tendon and keratin to a bony surface. And so uh, the fact that we were finding these Sharpie's fibers suggested that there was something attached to the top of that skull, and, and so that was, that was a good in piece of information, but we didn't know exactly what it meant. But when we looked at an adult pachycephalosaurus skull, we also found those Sharpie's fibers, but we found that there were no spongy areas in the adults. And of course, if these dinosaurs are in fact bashing their heads together, we would assume they were doing it as adults, not as juveniles. So this seemed to falsify the hypothesis that these dinosaurs actually bash their heads together because there is no cushioning effect in the adults. In fact, when we look at all three of them, uh, the juveniles have this very long, fast-growing bone, the cushioning-looking stuff, the spongy stuff. We see that that is just for fast growth. So we can see the dome grew very fast, here is sort of the remnant of it in a subadult, and it's absent in adults. So we seem to be able to falsify that hypothesis, but, but it has this massive accumulation of, of 
of Sharpie's fibers, which suggests that there is something on top of the head of this dinosaur. And of course, this is what sixth graders are for. They will figure it out. Sixth graders probably can come up with all sorts of ideas of what, are on what is sitting on top of this dinosaur's head. All right, so, so but, but th that's something that we also thought we could figure out. So we sort of took off from there and decided we'd see if we could figure out what kind of things would be on a dinosaur skull. And of course, the initial hypothesis has always been that dinosaurs had skin on their heads, except in places where they have horns and beaks. We would assume that they had keratin in these areas, right? So where the horns are, where the beaks are, it would be covered with keratin. And so we can make this comparison. Here is the horn of a triceratops and the horn of a cow, of a cow, and we can see that the structures are very, very similar to one another. And so it's quite likely that the horn of triceratops was in fact covered with some kind of a keratin sheath. But what's interesting is that when you look at the areas that would be covered by a keratin sheath, there is no difference between that area and the rest of the skull. In fact, the structure that we see is absolutely identical over the entire area of the skull. And so when we started looking very closely at these skulls, what we discovered are these indented vessels these indented blood-looking channels that go all over the skulls of these horned dinosaurs. And, and looking into indented vessels, we discovered that indented vessels are actually found under the beaks of birds, under the keratin of the beaks of birds. They're found under the under the claws of, of any animal that has claws. So we do have indented vessels under keratin. And if we cut those areas open, we actually find that there is uh, Sharpie's fibers as well. Now indenting vessels basically are formed as the corneum, the keratin, hardens. It actually pushes the vessels in the dermis down into the bone, making the indented vessels. And so what we did is we just went out and we got areas of Triceratops and Taurosaurus and other horned dinosaurs, cut through these areas and studied them and what we found were these massive bundles of Sharpie's fibers. So we were able to confirm that these areas on a Triceratops, for example, were completely covered with keratin. And keratin's kind of an interesting substance, as you probably all know. Birds have beaks with keratin on them. Keratin is easily colored. We see colors in, in birds. Their feathers are keratin. Their beaks are keratin. Keratin can, you can actually change color seasonally. Um, and it's possible, of course, that that dinosaurs, especially animals like Taurosaurus with these big holes, these big openings, could actually change color 
when they're mad. Now, we do that all the time, right? You change color when you're mad, don't you? We all we get red, and dinosaurs probably could do the same thing. But that's neither here nor there. The point is, is that these dinosaurs' skulls were covered with keratin, very different looking than what we, we think of Triceratops and Taurosaurus these days. Horned dinosaurs, the artists will be changing the way these dinosaurs looked. But getting back to these pachycephalosaurs, they don't have indented vessels on their skulls. So again, we have no idea of what these dinosaurs were like and what was on top of their head. Stegosaurus, another dinosaur. This dinosaur actually has indented vessels in its plates. And early on, researchers suggested that that the plates were covered with a keratin, a keratin covering. But other people have come along and said, well, the vessel grooves on the surface of the plates suggest that they may have been used for thermal regulation. And so we just took a bunch of plates and we looked at them. We pl plotted out the blood vessels on the plates. But then we looked at the histology, the internal structure of the bone, and we realized that that the people had suggested that the, the vessels actually, the blood came through these vessels and then out onto the surface of the, of the plate, it couldn't work because there is, no, there is no passageway from what looked like these internal structures to the external structures. And in fact, the plates of Stegosaurus looked just exactly like the heads of the, uh, the skulls of of Triceratops and so forth, and in fact, they're covered with, they, they have these tremendous bundles of Sharpie's fibers within them, suggesting that, in fact, these uh, old guys were probably right, that uh, Stegosaurus uh, probably just had keratin over its, over its plates and that they were not used for thermoregulation. Now, what we've been doing is, so, so you know, we, we discover that, that there really seems to be a correlation between Sharpie's fibers, indented vessels, and keratin covering. So we go out and we start looking at a whole bunch of other dinosaurs, and we find that the indented vessels exist in all of the horned dinosaurs. We don't find any evidence of them in any of the of duckbill dinosaurs or those kinds of dinosaurs, but we, we do find them in some of the meat-eating dinosaurs. And it just so happened that in 2002, when I was looking at this, uh, we happened to have a field expedition and we were collecting what is probably going to be the most beautiful T-Rex skeleton ever found. Um, this is the excavation called B-Rex. Um, <clears throat> just so you all know, I don't know how many graduate students we have in the audience, but you see this hole right here? You, you see the quarry down here and the 40-foot cliff above it? That right there, that 40 feet of rock, 1,000 cubic yards of rock was moved by graduate students. <laughs> This is, this is something to remember. 
slave labor in paleontology is called graduate students. And they're very, very good at this. So really what we did is we, 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 we actually, they belayed themselves out on the edge of this cliff and with jackhammers, spent six weeks jackhammering down till they got down to the quarry floor and they discovered this Tyrannosaurus. We, we found the bones of this Tyrannosaurus rex. Um, what you see in red is what we've actually collected so far. The blue parts we have not collected, although we're still working on this site. But the preservation of this specimen is just exquisite. And when we looked at the skull bones, we found indented, we found these indented vessels um, in areas around the orbits and on its nose. So, so there's pretty good evidence that, that dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus rex had keratin coverings around its eyes and out on its nose. So, so you know, just, just looking at a few of the hypotheses from, from the 20th century and, and looking at them sort of in a new light, um, we know now that, that dinosaurs had extremely rapid growth. We know that the dome uh, was certainly not used in headbutting, but we have no idea what it was for. But most of these th features now, um, over the years, people have been hypothesizing that the horns of Triceratops and the shields of Triceratops and the horns of, or the domes of these animals, that these animals were actually engaging in some kind of sexual display. And we know that, that birds, you know, will display to one another, but they don't actually bump into each other and they don't gouge each other. And they don't, birds are pretty nice to one another. And people have been suggesting that, that dinosaurs may have been very much like mammals that actually do crash into one another and do all sorts of things, beat up on each other for, <clears throat> for sexual display and to get the, to get the female or so forth. But in dinosaurs now, it's starting to look like there probably isn't, we don't have evidence for sexual display. What it looks like is we're looking at evidence really of species recognition. We don't, we, I don't think we can go much further than that. I, we've certainly got, we know that there's a tremendous diversity among horned dinosaurs and pachycephalosaurs and duckbill dinosaurs and even tyrannosaurs. And a lot of evidence that there would have been uh, uh, certainly good reason for species recognition, but there is really no evidence to suggest that any of these features, any of these characteristics were used um, in anything like um, uh, sexual display. It's probably all for species recognition. So, so that's, that's basically the conclusions. As far as what's on the horizon for the 21st century, I think we're going to see a lot of people working in a lot of other areas uh, and important areas in the world will be Argentina, Mongolia, Tanzania, France, Romania, and Spain, and of course Montana, because that's where I dig. And 
our methods and our and the things that we're going to start looking into are going to really be different. We're, we're, we know we have machines now that allow us to do an awful lot of things, and and we're using CAT scanners more often. We're looking at we actually are doing molecular paleontology. We are successfully extracting things like collagen and keratin from dinosaurs. We are not, however, extracting DNA. We are not going to clone dinosaurs. We are not going to bring them back. But we are finding some very interesting things when we're studying their teeth. We've got, uh, like I say, CAT scan technology now that allows us to actually see embryos and eggs. Uh, we're looking at the big at the at the air passages through bones in dinosaurs that is very similar to birds. We're looking at growth rates. Um, we're just able to do a lot more in paleontology now that that so now that machines are getting better and and computers are helping us. And frankly, laboratory research in dinosaurs is probably what's going to allow us to ask questions like, what color were dinosaurs? It doesn't seem possible that we could ever address a question like that, and yet colors have proteins, proteins we can get, and skin impressions we find. It may be possible to tell what color dinosaurs were within the next 20 or 30 years. So if you want to see where all this stuff is going on, come visit us at the Museum of the Rockies in Montana. Thank you very much. Questions for Jack? Question here. Oh. Yes. Why 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 can't we get DNA? Well, DNA does apparently doesn't last long enough. Well, you could you could work your way backwards, couldn't you? Well, I. I don't know. Is that possible? Um, I'm sure you have to ask a molecular biologist. I'm just guessing. Okay. Do we have a molecular biologist in the house? <laughs> All right. Well, I, that doesn't, I don't know. People have asked me a long time ago, people asked whether it was, <clears throat> you know, people really wanted Jurassic Park to be real. I mean, for some reason, who knows why, you know, I mean, the last thing I want around here is another dinosaur, a big dinosaur. But, uh, you know, reverse engineering a chicken would probably work better. Yeah, find the genes, you know, for teeth, tails, yes. That is correct. They have no limbs at all, and yet they're successful creatures. Uh, could Tyrannosaurus have been like a, what they used to call a transitional form 
in the sense that it doesn't need its forearms and it's getting by without them. Has anybody discovered a Tyrannosaurus-like skeleton with no forearms at all? Uh, well, there are, there are, not really, but they see, the, the arms of T. rex seem to be vestigial. Uh, Despletosaurus is a dinosaur, that, a predecessor of T. rex, and it has larger arms. So it, it does, you know, seem to be some kind of a transition on the way to losing its arms before it went extinct. But uh, as a scavenger, it didn't need arms. <laughs> yes? Wow. We have a question there? Oh, I, I have a little girl right here that's... Oh. That's, we're going we're gonna... to... I read in a book that it was said that the Plachiosaurus, the grown-up Plachiosaurus, didn't have any spongy bone, didn't have any sort of spongy bone in its head, so it could prove to its mate how tough it was in survival, so that it would prove to be the best around. And I also read that the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Where, where are you going to do your graduate work? <laughs> are you going to come to Montana? I don't know. Yeah, do, do come to Montana State, okay? And I also read that the Tyrannosaurus Rex has three layers of teeth, and they were about, I don't know, about one foot big. Is that true? Well, they're, yeah, their T-Rex's teeth are about that long. And, yes, there's, they're about three deep. Yeah, that's right. Do you want to come teach my graduate students? <laughs> We're serious. I'm serious. I only read a book. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Let's see. We had a question over there. I was wondering if you could tell us whether there was any evidence as to what kind of noises dinosaurs made. They always roar in movies, but is that realistic at all, or is there any way to tell? Actually, we're, we're, we're kind of looking into We're kind of looking into that week. Some dinosaurs actually have narial chambers through their heads, and it has been hypothesized by some that, that the adults actually have resonating chambers. And so we are kind of recreating them in computers now, and we are sending air through them, and, and we are getting some sounds out. But, but really what the neatest thing that we've discovered yet is that and it makes perfectly good sense. The babies made very high-pitched sounds, and the adults made very deep sounds. But what's interesting is that the, this, this resonating chamber actually does not develop until the animal is really old. So basically, what that means is the youngsters, the teenagers, and even the sub-adults could not interrupt the adults. Microphone, ready. A question about the bone rings and how you know that they form once a year. Does it tell you something about the climate? Does it tell you something about the food they ate? Were they hibernating? Good question. Um, we, we, <clears throat> we have, we go to uh, the 
for the elk and for the alligators, we've gone to farms, elk farms and alligator farms, and we actually inject dye into their bones as they grow. So we know that alligators and elk lay down a line annually. So unfortunately, like I say, birds grow up in one year, so we can't do it with birds, although we do inject them and we get some idea of growth of bone deposition rates. But because we see it in mammals, we see it in, in we see these lines in birds, we just assume that, that they're annual because we have, can't find anything that isn't. But, but are they laid down? Um, they probably, they're, they're definitely seasonal and, and we can get them laid down. Um, elk, for example, lay theirs down in the, in, in the, you know, in the dead of winter when they are not eating much. Um, alligators kind of seem to lay them down a lot in any environment, and sometimes not. So it's, it's kind of hard to say. I, I'm pretty sure that they are a primitive feature, that, that, that we see a, that it's a primitive feature for most tetrapods. So, so environmental is a good reason, but not the only reason. And does it say anything about the environment then? I don't know. Jack, can you give us an idea at what rate new species get discovered? Like, say, in the last 20 years, how many new species have been discovered? Uh, dinosaur discoveries. Um, we find a new dinosaur, what people call a new species. Now, remember, you know, we can't. You could, you could find a new species about every 20 minutes if you, if you were a good splitter and just, you know, any characteristic made a dinosaur. But on the average, we find a new dinosaur about every seven weeks, a new genus. There's about 850 of them right now. About every seven weeks right now, we're finding a new dinosaur. But that's because we have so many people looking in both hemispheres. So right now, the southern hemisphere is producing one about as often as you get a new quarter. We have a question there. Um, two years ago, I was in Mongolia at those red sand dunes that you showed, and we scraped aside some sand and found a protoceratops about the size of a big dog. Um, we didn't disturb it. We covered it back up. Wanted to put a, we should have put a plastic bag with our names and phone numbers inside the ribs so that we could tell people to call us when they found it. But it made me wonder, um, are there certain types that you'd tend to find in Mongolia or versus Montana versus Tanzania? Are there certain types that come in a certain area? Yes. Dinosaurs, dinosaurs lived all over the world on all the continents for basically 140, 150 million years. Can you like generalize like the bird-like ones or the this or that type ones would be in a certain area more well, than others? Well, we have, you know, there's, there's whole a whole ecosystem in each in each place, but but Protoceratops um, is very common in Mongolia. And in fact, my wife Celeste and I, um, when we were in Mongolia a few years ago, we found a Protoceratops, a pretty good skeleton, every 20 minutes or so. 
doesn't really take, doesn't Seriously. take a lot of effort. I mean, they're all over the place, and Velociraptor is very common, but but there are Protoceratopsian type dinosaurs in North America, um, and then Ceratopsian dinosaurs in North America, but not in Mongolia. Uh, certain kinds of dinosaurs live in certain areas, and that's where they evolved. Let's see. We have a question right here. When people first started discovering dinosaurs, it probably was a long time ago. When but they started what? Discovering that discovering, there were yes. dinosaurs. Well, how did they know that these certain bones went together and these were part of another dinosaur? Well, they did. That's a good question. They actually didn't. Sometimes when people found dinosaurs, they were kind of scattered around and they had to guess what parts actually went to one particular dinosaur. And we have some very famous examples of mistakes. And one of them was Brontosaurus got the wrong head. And for years it, had, it was wearing the wrong head. And then someone discovered one day that it had the wrong head. And then they were really embarrassed. But, but see, in science, we really shouldn't be embarrassed because... In science, all you can do is make your best guess, and a lot of times it'll be wrong. So science is one of those things where, where it's okay to be wrong, because the first guess might, might be wrong. So if, I always tell people that if, if they don't mind being wrong, science is a good thing to get into. But if you mind being wrong, then you should get into politics. <laughs> Okay, let's Politicians see. hate to be wrong. <laughs> right there. Yes, I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on your research process. For instance, um, is the most difficult part to um, the manual labor of extracting the dinosaurs, the hypothesizing theories, or the computing away in, in a computer? What kind of is the most challenging or the bottleneck, if you well, can answer that. For me, I, I mean, I, I love everything. I just love what I do. I mean, I, I go out and discover dinosaurs, and then I have graduate students dig them up. So, so the hardest part is probably the digging, and I don't do that. So, and you know, the, the actual doing the research is is just a lot of fun. But you know, most of that is done by graduate students also. I mean, that's, that's where theses come from. Um, so I just, you know, mostly I get to do the really fun things like finding and then writing. Although, you know, writing isn't always fun for everybody. But it's not fun for me either. But okay. as we all know here, it's how you get the money. Do it again. You're digging in Fort Peck or Makoshika, and you've got your indentured labor working at a thousand cubic yards of state park or, or dam or something. I was wondering, do you have to file an environmental impact statement on something that's 70 million years old, and yet you're knocking it off in a couple of summers? We, uh, well, that's a that's a good question. We we do get a permit to dig our hole, and. Uh, <clears throat> 
Fortunately, it's, it's in an area where there is no vegetation and impossible to put back. So if we just make a cliff a little bit deeper back into the hill, where it will be probably in another 10 or 15 years anyway, and we just we do it a little quicker. That's that's true. But but fortunately, in the badlands of Montana, unlike <clears throat> what I would call the badlands of New Jersey, <clears throat> we don't have vegetation. We don't have to worry about that stuff. We have a kid right yeah right there. Yeah. We have to get some of the people in the middle. Is it true you found like a 40-foot hadrosaur? Like. Is it true that I found a 40-foot hadrosaur? Yes, is, it is. Is that like one of the largest ever found? I believe so, yes. <laughs> I thought it was a T-Rex when we found it. <laughs> I was looking for duckbills. We thought we found a T-Rex because it was so big, and it turned out to be a duckbill, and all we got was its tail. Right. And it's more than 20 feet long. Wow. It's huge. I'm kind of glad we didn't find the rest of it. I like dinosaur. I really like dinosaurs that fit in a Ziploc bag. Uh, pardon the pun, but you and Bob Barker have bumped heads on the subject of, of extinction. What is the latest? What happened at 65 million years ago? On the uh, Bob and I, Bob and I, do not argue about extinction at all. We do have arguments about whether T-Rex was a predator or a scavenger, and that was one of the reasons we had him eaten in Jurassic Park 2. <laughs> but what is the latest? Uh, what, what is the latest theory as far as that 65 Extinction? Million? I, I have absolutely no idea what killed the dinosaurs, and I don't care. Uh, thanks, Jack. <laughs> That's, I mean, I just, you have Gerda Keller here. She can figure it out. Well, um, I found out the other day that they're making Jurassic Park 4. That's a fact. Have they given you a call? Am I what? Have they given you a call? Uh, they have called me, yes. So? <laughs> We're making Jurassic Park 4. Sweet. Another question there? And, and just, just so you know, Universal is... Universal is our largest donor to our research. So just so you know that, that actually something good comes out of these fictional movies. Um, I have, well, a couple of the questions I have are, um, well, A, we have all these different i mean i'm all for the uh dinosaur bird theory but we have all these different candidates for um the pre-bird the dinosaur that became the bird coming from many different time periods throughout the mesozoic era like from the middle from the end from the middle of the end and also um i remember once i saw something about um young tyrannosaurs possibly having feathers and losing them when they got older and um, what, what do you think of that? Well, let me, let me start with the first one. The predecessor of birds did not come after birds. Does that make sense? The 
the ancestor of birds did not come along after birds. Does that make sense? All right, so we know that birds originated in the late Jurassic period. That means that the predecessor of birds had to come from before that, right? Okay, does that make sense? Does it make sense? Okay. Okay, so that's the answer to that. They don't, you can't get the predecessor of birds in the late Cretaceous. All right? I guarantee it. That's, that's like, that's like having, that's like, that's like your grandfather coming after you. That isn't going to work. See, in the late Cretaceous, we have birds like um, Ichthyornis, and then we have, I think at the same time, I don't know, maybe I'm just mixed up, um, it, these feathered but still rather dinosaurian dinosaurs. Yeah, but they share a common ancestry. That's, that's the key. So the dinosaur like... You have dinosaurs and you have birds, right? And somewhere you can you could trace them back to their common ancestry, which will be back in the Jurassic sometime. So the dinosaurs... So nobody, nobody is saying that Velociraptor gave rise to birds. Okay? Yeah, but I mean like... Just, um, all we're saying is Velociraptor and birds share a common ancestor. Yeah, but what was that, that Chinese feathered one? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. They're one in Chinese them? names. At least, <laughs> whatever. Okay, there is a there is and a the question. the other one you were talking, you said something about T. Rex having feathers. There's no, we don't even have a juvenile T. Rex, so we have no idea what T. Rex. Well, there we have no juvenile T. Rexes, or, in fact, the smallest tyrannosaur known, the smallest tyrannosaur that we have. I actually had a picture of it up uh, a little bit ago, and it was, it's about 12, well, it's about, about 10 feet long. It's the smallest tyrannosaur known, and it's one that we are working on presently. One last question over here. Um, I read somewhere that the T-Rex actually was alive during the Cretaceous period, not the Jurassic. Is that true? Tyrannosaurus lived during the Cretaceous period. That's correct. Yep. Let us thank Jack once again for a terrific lecture. Thank you.